message this morning uh, called The Midwife, and that's uh, a little nod to my mum because she's obsessed with this show, and uh, she keeps saying to me, Julie, oh, it's like whatever it is, 15 seasons in or something, and, um, and she's obsessed with it, she's like, it's such a good show, and I'm like, mum, it's too far gone, like, I can't, I can't jump in now, I can't binge watch that much all in one go, there's just too much, but she loves this show, and as I was reading at the start of the year, if you don't know, I did... Um, it's called a 30-day shred, which is nothing to do with the gym, but because um, me and Neil don't like gyms. Um, but I read through the Bible from start to finish in 30 days. So you have to read, or well, I listened to it, so but same, same. And, um, and so I listened to it through in 30 days. And, um, and it, I, this uh, book came back to me at this time, just as I was preparing this preach, and it reminded me of something that I'd read, and, and so I, I want to take you to the book of Exodus this morning. So if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be in Exodus 1. And um, I, I just, this just little account at the start just fascinated me, and uh, I started to look into it, and the more I looked into it, the more interesting it got, and uh, God really challenged me about some things in my life, and so hopefully that's going to help you this morning. But in our year of living, that's the word over our church that we've kind of grabbed a hold of. I want you to think about this message. If we were going to kind of put it into that series, I'd call it Live Expecting. Live Expecting. And to do that, you have to call the midwife sometime. And that actually happens in this story. And so perhaps you're new to church or you're new back in and you've not been around church for a long time. And Exodus is, is a continuation of a story from Genesis. So it's all centered around a family. So God comes to a guy called Abraham and picks this family. We don't know why it's him, but picks this family and says, I'm going to be with you. And, and although you're a small family at the moment, I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation, which was a hilarious thing to say to somebody who was super old with a barren wife and kind of no prospects. And yet God, through his grace and his mercy, works miracle after miracle, and they kind of stuff up along the way, and he kind of gets them back on track. And, and there's a story in Genesis of this family and the promises of God over them. And then the next generation come and God repeats the promises to them. So we have Abraham and Isaac and then we get Jacob. And then we get the 12 sons of Jacob and Joseph with his Technicolor dream coat, if you remember that story. And kind of we've got this amazing, rich, rich, rich narrative of this family. And God's with them and he's going to be faithful to them. He's going to make them a great nation and but what's really interesting when we get to the book of Exodus, obviously Exodus, we know what that means. It's all about kind of leaving and departing. But if you are in the Jewish faith, you would call this as you were like, or if we were said, we're going to turn to the book of Exodus, they would say, we're going to turn to the book of names, which I thought was so interesting because it does start with a lot of names. And so as we're going to read the whole way through chapter one this morning, I want to take notice of the names because the names are important and the names tell us so much this morning. So here we go. We're going to start in chapter one. The verses are going to be behind me and we're going to read and stop and then have a little chat about what's going on. So the book of names, chapter one says this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, 
the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So from Abraham to present day in this part of the story was about 200 years. So when this family goes to Egypt, because remember, Joseph's in charge in Egypt. And there's a big famine in the land. And so through an amazing series of events, his family end up going to Joseph and he ends up saving his whole family. And so Joseph's like, all right, everybody come back to Egypt because there's food here because he's stewarded well what God has given to him. So this whole family goes to Egypt. And from Abraham to Joseph and where we get here is about 200-ish years and there are about 70 people, tell, it tells us in verse 5. So just want to remember that, 200 years and we get 70 people. Verse 6, now Joseph gets really cheery, and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, it feels a little bit like the Bible's kind of pressed a fast-forward button, and so it has. So we get to where the family arrive in Egypt. There's about 70 of them. That takes 200 years. Bible presses fast forward around about another 200 years. And then we find out that they're not 70 anymore. They're now numerous. They've multiplied greatly. They've increased in number. And so there's the evidence of this promise that was given to this family. Because remember, the promise was given back to Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and then to the 12 sons. And he said, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to be um, fruitful and multiplying. Your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand underneath your feet. And so that's the promise that has been talked about in this family. And so this, they start to see that happen. They be, start to become really numerous. And this promise is being worked out. And so the, the start of this story starts with multiplication, lots of birth, children, lots of blessing. And it takes 200 years to get to 70 people. And then in the next 200 years, 70 people change into a nation. That's pretty amazing. That's a big fast-forward button from God. That's a big exponential, if we were going to look at it on a curve graph, I'm not very mathematical, but if we were going to, it would be like, it'd be going like this, a good kind of curve that we would not want to flatten. So the curve would be like a big upward trend. It's lots and lots of kids and blessing and all that kind of good stuff. And the first thing that I just wanted to pull out of that is that often we can have a promise from God. We can have something that's spoken over us or our family. God can say something to us. And depending on where you sit in the story depends on kind of what it is that you're seeing. So if you were in the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob generations for that 200 years, it would seem really foolish to you that God has said to your family, you're going to be a nation. You'd be like, all right, <laughs> the 70 of us were a very, very small nation, but okay. And you would have been thinking, well, this is a really strange thing for God to have said over us. But in that, in that context, if you're in that set of 200 years, the call there is to persevere. 
The call there is to believe. The call there is to stay faithful to what God has said. Your contribution, if you're in that first 200 years in your scenario, is to be faithful and hold on to the promise of God, to hold on to what he said. But perhaps you find yourself and you're in the the second part of the 200 years where you're going from 70 to a nation. Well, at that point, when everybody starts having so many kids all the time and you're like, gosh, our family gatherings are getting a bit bigger. Like we need some more snacks when we come around together and we need to get some more barbecues going because we've turned from 70 into a nation. Then that part is to give all glory to God. That's not to say at that point, well, look at our family. Aren't we just amazing? Aren't we just so fruitful? Isn't God just blessing us so much? But to say, actually, we recognize this increases from God. This is not our doing. This is because God has been faithful. This is because of generations of people that have prayed before us. And so whether you find yourself in your life, in your scenario, when you think about the promises of God in your life, whether you find yourself in the first 200 years in that sort of scenario and you don't yet see the promises, hold on and be faithful to what God has said. But if you find yourself in the second 200 years where your curve's going all the way up, give glory to God because it's him and it's his faithfulness that brings increase. Amen? Amen? Though the promises of God are rarely in our timing, I'm sure Abraham died thinking, God, did I hear you wrong? Did I hear you right at all? Did I totally miss it? And have I, have I like messed my family up because I've just been talking forever about we're going to be a great nation? Because he never saw it. He never saw it. And neither did his son. And neither did his grandson. And yet, he held on to the faithfulness of God. He held on to the promises of God. And so the prom- although the promises of God rarely come in our own timing, they are sure and they are true. If God has said it, he will do it. Amen? Amen. All right. Verse 8 says this. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. I remember I said at the start that this book is called the Book of Names. I find it really interesting, verse 8. It just tells us then a new king. We've had lots of names so far. We've heard about all the sons. And this is the most important person in the land, apparently. And the book doesn't even bother to name him. He has a name, obviously. His name is not New King. People don't walk up to him and go, good morning, New King. He had a name, but the book doesn't even bother to tell us. I find that so interesting. In the book of names, it's like you guys just don't even need to know what this guy is called. And I think that might be because the author is trying to tell us where this guy sits in the hierarchy of what's going on in the story. Actually, yes, he's powerful. Yes, he has influence. Yes, this guy may look important in the standing of the world. But actually, in the story of God, he has no name. 
He needs to be put in a correct position in this story. He's left nameless in the book of names. That's like a big burn from the writer of this book. It's like him going, there's a book of names and there's an important guy, but you actually don't need to know this guy's name. He's that unimportant in the grand scheme of things. So the writer is kind of being a bit salty with this guy here. And I think sometimes what I find challenging about that is that I can maybe too quickly name things in my life. I can too quickly give something a name and I can elevate it above where it should be in the story of my life. I can take a king and say, well, this is this person's name. This is this king's name in my life. And God would say to me, and maybe you this morning, have I asked you to name that thing? Have I asked you to elevate that? Or do you need to leave that thing nameless so that it can be in the correct position in the God story of your life? Have I given over power to something in my life simply because I've named it? And, I've, and I'm not talking about, you know, sometimes when you meet really super spiritual Christians and they'll say, you know, they'll be like, how are you doing? Or, you know, it's something, and they'll just be like, oh, we don't speak of it or whatever. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying something like this. So I have a condition, a thyroid condition. But what, what I was very careful not to do was call it my condition. So in my thinking and in my speaking, I'd be really careful not to say, oh, well, my Hashimoto's is acting up today, which is just a turn of phrase. And you think, oh, well, it's just not that important. But it's just a little piece of language that claims it as mine, and I think it elevates it as a king. It's, it's the Hashimoto's that I have at the moment. Not always going to have it. Now, Jesus chooses to heal me before we meet him or after we meet him. Healing is coming either way. But it's not mine. I don't need to elevate it. It's not my anxiety. It's not my sickness. It doesn't belong to me. I don't have to claim it for myself and elevate it and maybe put it in the position of king in my life. I can demote some of those things and say, actually, it's just a thing that is with me at the moment, but it's King Jesus who is highest in my life. It's his name that is higher. It's him that's in the place of authority. And so maybe just a challenge this morning, and I didn't even realize I was doing it until somebody said, Julie, it's not your Hashimoto's. It doesn't belong to you. And I was like, do you know what? You're so right. You're so right. And it's just a tiny little thing. So maybe there's something that you're dealing with and you've claimed it. And inadvertently, you've raised the position of it. You've given it a name in the book of names, if we're going to put it that way. And you need to leave it nameless. Not to deny that it's not there. We're not saying do that because the writer of this book's not like, and there was no king in the land because there was. There was a king there, but maybe we just don't need to name him. So in that verse 8 through to 10, so the king is getting worried now because he's raised up. He's been raised to a position of power. He doesn't really know anything about Joseph who saved the nation and basically got it to a place where it was massively prosperous and got it to where it was. And, and the, the nation of Israel has increased and they're doing amazing, but he doesn't know any of that. He just has become maybe a bit paranoid. And he looks at this group of people and he's like, they've become too numerous. This 70 people have become an entire nation of people within a nation. Now, that's an interesting dynamic to have, a nation within a nation. 
And he says we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. He's, he's getting pretty suspicious. And to be fair, he kind of has a little bit of a point, but he's seeing it a different way than all the other kings have seen it. Because remember, there's 200 years. So there's been quite a few kings and pharaohs in between that time. And where the Israelites were, the Bible tells us that they camped in the land of Goshen, which is like on the outer edge of Egypt and, and was between there and then Canaan. So if we were going to look at it on a map, there'd be like Egypt and then in Egypt, Goshen, which is where all the Israelites were, and then Canaan. Now, smart pharaohs would look at that and be like, great, there's a whole nation of people between our nation and Canaan. And so there's a nice buffer going on there. So if any attack happens, none of our people are going to get killed first. All the Israelites die first. That's a good thing if you're the king of a nation. You don't want your people to die. But he doesn't see it that way. He starts to get suspicious and he starts to think, well, actually, they could take over. They could become... Because if, if the Israelites and Canaan team up, well, then you've got two against one in your own country, which is also not a good thing. And so he makes this choice. He starts to think about the economics of the problem. And he does this, verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, I love this, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. So plan A was let's just enslave them and make them work really hard. And then that's just going to make them die out. God was like, no, top trump. I'm going to just kind of put my plan and purpose on this. And no matter what you do to my people, I'm going to bless them. And they're going to be fruitful and multiply. Because remember, that's the promise over them. So they made their lives bitter, verse 14, with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So this, the writer's setting up, like, because we've, we've not really kind of got to the crux of the story. There's all this is set up. And he's setting up a, like a big bad, what you'd call in the Marvel films. Is that right now? There you go. Thank you very much. I do listen. I get wife points for that Marvel reference in my preach. So he's setting up the big bad, which is a king, Pharaoh. We don't need to know his name. And the Egyptians who are trying to oppress and who are trying to basically blot out this nation that's within a nation. And then you've got the people of God, the children of Israel, who've got the favor of God upon them and who are obviously having a really tough time of it, but God's favor is on them. And so the opposite of what the world wants to happen to them is happening. They are being fruitful still, and they are multiplying, and God's favor and hand is upon them. The writer setting up good and evil, life and death, expansion versus constriction. He's kind of set this up, and then into this moment, we then get the point of the story. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua. Let's just pause there. We're in the book of names. The king of Egypt, most powerful person in the land. The writer's like, you guys don't need to know this person's name. In comes, stage left, our midwives. So they're women in a 
male patriarchal system. This is the people who are writing this book. That's just the way it was then. And they are named. We get their names straight away. So the midwives are called in, Shifra and Pua. And this is what the king of Egypt says to them. Verse 16. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. So we already know that the king is talking to significant players in the story because they're given names in the book of names. These two women who we never hear of ever again in the Bible, but here they are called by their name. And the the king of Egypt now is so worried because his initial plan of we're going to oppress them and we're going to work them hard and that will make them die out has backfired. They just become more fruitful the more that he's oppressed them. And so now he's like, okay, plan B um, is infanticide. He's like, we're just going to start to kill children, which kind of tells you his mental state, not right in the head. For him to be like, okay, this is a logical thing that we are now going to do. And I think he makes a massive mistake in that he asks women to kill children and he asks midwives whose job it is to safely deliver children into the world. And he's like, this is a really smart plan, guys. I'm going to call the midwives in and I'm going to tell them what to do and then they're going to kill the children for us. Which is so interesting to me that, A, that they would think that that would work. But anyway, so these two women, Shifra and Pua, it says that they're the, the midwives. Now, if we know that there's a nation, we can probably guess that there's probably not just two midwives for an entire nation. Otherwise, these poor women are never sleeping because the nation is being fruitful and multiplying. There's lots of babies everywhere all the time. So the writers think that probably this, this was representative. So these were like the, midwife, like the midwifery guild, if that makes sense. So these were the head of the midwifery Midwifery guild. There we go. Not the Widmifery. That's a different thing entirely. <laughs> so he calls them in and he talks to them. And it's really interesting to me because midwives in that time was one of the only professions that a woman could hold. It was something that you were trained into from being a young girl. It was an apprenticeship job that you could have. It was actually an honored place within the community and within the society because that society, the, the nation of Israel, valued life. In a world where it was really normal to sacrifice your children so that you would have a good harvest or that you needed your crops to grow faster or you needed something or you just wanted the blessing of a different God on your life, it would be really normal for you to sacrifice your children. But in the company of Israel, that was not the case. They valued life and they had an honored place within the community. And they weren't just there like it is now in midwifery care. They weren't not just there for kind of as a woman's pregnant and the birth of the baby. They were there on the wedding night. It was a bit awkward, but the midwives there on the wedding night. And they would be there in the room playing music and kind of setting the scene. So your midwife, I, I can't even imagine how awkward that would be, but there you go. So they were there helping the conception go well on the wedding night. They were there to help women understand their cycles in a time where they didn't have apps and trackers and all the helpful things that we know about now because they were working everything off moons and different things back then. So the midwives had to kind of know what they were doing. 
They helped women know when the right time to conceive was. They could help with infertility, with remedial things. They were there during labor, and they were there in the aftercare as well. So once a baby had been born, they'd rub them with salt and, and bind them and do all these little things that now we're like, oh, why would they do that? But they were doing the best that they could at the time to look after the life with the knowledge that they had. So they were a known, active, very present part of community life. Everybody in the community knew who the midwives were. So that any time you needed them, you'd be like, call the midwife. And you'd be like, oh, who's our midwife again? No, you knew who the midwives were. Because as a young girl, you'd seen them. They were telling you about your cycles. Maybe the guys didn't know them so much. But for the girls in the community, they would absolutely know who their midwives were. Their lives were devoted to the care of the most vulnerable people in their nation. And I was thinking about this the other day, that actually, as they're birthing these children, they had the privilege of, of physically guiding into the world the future of their nation, the future promises of God. Every time they birth a child, they, they, they guided into the world the promise of God over that nation. And I'm sure they took that very, very seriously. And so it's these women that are called before the king with no name, who says to them, ladies, next time the girls are on the birthing stool and they're about to give birth, if you see it's a boy, just kill them. If it's a girl, you can let them live. And they're given a direct order. There's nothing like wishy-washy about that order, is there? There's nothing that you'd be like, I'm not quite sure what it is that you're asking me to do. You know when your boss asks you to do something and you're like, can you just repeat that for me? Because I didn't quite understand. Can you clarify? No clarification was needed. They knew what they were being ordered to do, not asked to do, ordered to do by the most powerful person in the land. Verse 17 says this. It's incredible. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. That's such a tiny little sentence, and it's absolutely stunning. These women who've been given a direct order by the person that it would appear holds their life in his hands. He can say, kill these women, and they'd be cut down without a second thought. And yet, the Bible tells us they feared God and did not do what they'd been told to do. I think they had a correct perspective of where Pharaoh sat in the order of things. Because they're in front of the most powerful person in the land, and they come away from that and are like, you might be the most powerful person in the land, but we fear God. I'm actually worried about what God would say about me killing the future generations of this tribe. I'm actually worried about what he has to say about this situation. And so they have a correct perspective. And, and that sounds really lofty and awesome. But when you think about it, they have to go back to their midwifery team, which is at least tens, if not hundreds of women, and then say to them, girls, we've been given a direct order, but we're not going to do that. And it's one thing for them to be able to say, well, I'm going to risk my life for this. But it's quite another for them to say, and I want you to risk your life yeah. 
knowing that if Pharaoh finds out and he decides, they could all be killed and just be, that just be that. And so they have to make this decision. Fear God instead of man. And I love that because it sets this pattern for people when evil things come in the world, when times of great strife and the world, you know, when we think about things like World War II and slavery in the States and different scenarios that we see, the persecuted church now in the world. And there comes a point where it's like, will I fear God or am I going to fear man? People who were helping Jews within the World War II efforts. And they were like, well, they absolutely knew that what they were doing could lead to their death and the death of everybody in their family. But there must have been a sense of actually, I'm going to fear God instead of man. I'm going to do what the right thing to do is, even if it comes at the cost to their own life. Verse 18 tells us what happens next. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Because obviously, as they're going to disobey the order, it's going to become really obvious really soon that actually they've not done what they've been told to do. So this is not a kind of like a civil disobedience where you can maybe do something and nobody really find out, but you know internally that you've done the right thing, so you kind of feel good about it. It's like we're going to be disobedient and at some point, we're going to get called back into the office and be like, uh, what have you done? Because there's just going to be a load of boys around. So the, they have to make the decision, actually, we're going to do this. We're going to fear God instead of man. And knowing that we are going to be called back in and called to give an account for why this has happened. And so they probably had a little bit of time to work out what are we going to say when we're asked, why are all these boys around? Because you've been given a direct order by the most powerful person in the line. Yeah. And this is what he says. It's just the funniest thing. So Pharaoh's like, what's going on, girls? Verse 19, they say, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I'm like... You had so many months to come up with an excuse, and this is it. Like, you were like, right, girls, we're going to get called back into Pharaoh, and he's going to ask us, what are we going to say? And they're like, all right, let's go with the vigorous argument. They're just really vigorous, and we just don't know what to do. And the most funny thing that I find is that, is that apparently Pharaoh buys this. And I reckon it's because men were not around childbirth at this time. It would have been unthinkable for a man to be around as a woman is birthing. So as, they, as they're giving this excuse, and Pharaoh's there in his court with all his advisors, all male, and the women are like, they're just really vigorous. I don't know what to tell you. We tried, but when they get there, they're already there. And then it's a bit awkward to kind of take a baby off and kill them. So, you know, this is what happened. And I just wonder if there was a moment where the guys in the room just looked at each other and were like, is that reasonable? Like, could that actually happen? And they're like, I don't know. I've never been there. They'll be like, oh, I don't know. And so Ferris may be looking for some advice. And they're like, I don't know. I don't know. This seems like a reasonable excuse. Who knows? And Hebrew women, super vigorous. I don't know. And so they come up with this crazy excuse because nobody knows what they're talking about. So they can say what they want. 
and their explanation somehow is accepted, and they continue to live. And then look at what the Bible says. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. How beautiful is that? How gorgeous is just that full part of the story that they come up with this fab excuse. Nobody in the room knows if that's true or not. So like, oh, okay. And God's like, great, we're just going to make you increase even more. And because you listen to what God said rather than what man said, I'm going to give you what it is that you've wanted all this time. I'm going to finish with some observations and questions to help you live expecting for the rest of 2021. First is this, God's promises are linked to God's timing, not ours. And that's a really hard one to grab hold of and be okay with because we all like things in our own timing. And yet, as I've been reflecting on this recently, I can't ever think of when God's timing and my timing has lined up when, when I've wanted something and it's been exactly the right time because apparently my thoughts are not God's thoughts and my ways are not his ways and his plans are kind of better than my plans, who knew? And so when it comes to the timing of God, that's where I need to sit with it. Remember, we had 70 people. God speaks to a family and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And for 200 years, that was a 70-person nation, not even a nation. And in the next 200 years, they grow from 70 to an entire nation within a nation. So the question this morning to ask yourself is, where am I becoming impatient with the promises that God has given me? Where am I sitting in my first 200 years thinking, did God really say? Did I hear it wrong? Can I still believe? Can it really be that? Can God actually do what he said he's going to do? Can I settle in my heart that God actually knows what he's doing? Can I settle that, that I may not understand and I may never understand and may die like Abraham, not understanding, but can I be okay with the fact that God does know and actually that is enough? That's okay. Second observation is this. The king in the passage isn't named intentionally to place him in proper standing to God and those who faithfully obeyed him. And you might want to ask this question of yourself this week. What kings in my life have I elevated above their station? Have I named something too early? Have I named it in the story of God where actually God would say, I don't want you to name that. I don't want you to elevate that in your life. I want you to leave that nameless. I want you to get it in correct perspective of where this thing sits in the story. Yes, it's powerful. We don't need to deny that it's not there, but have you elevated it above where it should be? And how can I make a practical choice to replace King Jesus as the highest authority in my life? And it might just be as simple as changing some language. And when you're coming to a situation, not claiming it as yours or your sickness or your thing that is, that is happening, 
but saying this is a thing that is happening, but God is greater. And maybe being disciplined and being able to say, but actually it's God that is in charge of my life, but it's God that's in charge of my bank account, but it's God that's in charge of my job, but it's God that's in charge of my family, but it's God that's in charge of the salvation of my friends and my family. Third observation is this. There is always an attempt by the enemy on increase and fruitfulness in your life. Nobody was worried in Egypt about 70 people because it's 70 people in the state of a nation. No one's like, oh my gosh, this new family is here and there's 70 of them and we're just so worried about that. But the attack and the suspicion came when there was increase and there was fruitfulness. And sometimes we don't talk about this as an effect that when God is blessing something on your life, we can expect it just to be like, everybody's really pleased for us. Everybody's like, that's so awesome and it's so good. And, and the right people in your life will be like that for you. But sometimes people look upon increase in fruitfulness and they start to get suspicious and they start to want what you have and they start to think that you've got ulterior motives going on. And that's where the enemy wants to try and come and kill, steal, and destroy what is going on in your life. But when he does, he always oversteps his hand. He always overplays his hand because he's full of pride. And so he can be sneaky for a long time, but there will come a point where the enemy just overplays his hand. And you're like, of course it's you. <laughs> of course it's you coming to kill, steal, and destroy. We can see that really clearly because you've just showed your hand. And so maybe there's a promise on your life. Maybe there's something going on for you where there's increase in fruitfulness and there's an attack coming against it. Well, thank God that the enemy showed his hand. You can see it for what it is and you can trust in the promises of God. Fourth observation is this. With a promise, there always comes a challenge. Are we going to obey God or are we going to obey man? Where am I tempted to obey man rather than to fear God and trust him with my future. That was such a difficult choice for those midwives. Am I going to obey the most powerful person in the land who looks like they hold my life in their hands? Or am I going to make a choice to be faithful to God who actually holds my life in his hands? And am I going to do what he wants me to do? And that can look very different as number of people that are in this room, that situation will look different for you. But there always comes a choice for us. Are we going to obey what God wants or are we going to obey what man wants? And I pray that when the time comes, we are faithful to God and that we obey what he has asked us to do. And out of that obedience, obviously later in the story, we know that Moses comes one of these women, one of these midwives who's had their lives threatened, gets to deliver the deliverer. And they probably, they won't know. They're like, oh, cute baby. Because he says he was a cute baby in the Bible. He says he was a handsome baby. And so they, they deliver what they think is an ordinary baby simply because they've obeyed God rather than obeying man. And they have the honor. And I'm sure they would say for the rest of their life, I delivered Moses, you know. I was there. He was a good baby. I always knew he was going to be such a good baby. He came out and it was awesome. And I'm sure they told that story. Next observation is this. We all need midwives in our lives to safeguard, protect, and help to safely deliver the promises of God in our life. 
What do I mean by that? I don't mean that you're going to walk down to Redcliffe Maternity Ward and say, midwife, I need you in my life to steward the promises of God for me. No, what I mean is, when God gives you a promise, when he says, this is going to happen in your life, and you see no evidence that says that that's going to happen, and you start to walk out a faith journey, you can do it on your own, but it's very difficult. And you'll do much better if you call the midwives. If you get around you a team of people who have faith for what it is that you're believing for and who can stand with you and who can say, we may not see what it is that we're believing for yet, but we're going to stand with you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to believe with you. They're going to text you little verses every now and again, and they're going to help you birth in your life the promises of God. And I encourage you that God has already placed these people in your life. You can have a think now, and you'd be able to think of somebody. Somebody will pop into your mind right now that you know God has placed there, and they've placed them there to help you steward those promises in your life. We had that with our visas and with different scenarios in our life where we just did not see an answer for so long but what we had was a team of people who prayed with us, who when answers came through that looked all to the contrary, we would text them and be like, hey, it's looking really bad. Like they've said no on this and that and the other. And they, they text back and say, we're praying. And they text us a verse. And those people carried us through. Those were our midwives. There's a whole team of people in the UK that when we eventually get back there in like 2045 and we're able to see them, oh Lord, please before them. But we get them in a room and we say thank you to them because there's people that I don't even really know that well, but my mum knows them. And that's our England midwife team who prayed with us and believed with us and stood with us. And they're in our life because God has placed them there. So who are you going to be a midwife for? And who can be your midwives? Who can you trust with the plans and the purposes of God on your life that you can say, hey, would you stand with me and believe with me for that? And it's not going to be an enormous group of people. It might just be a few, but those few people are going to help you birth the promises of God in your life. I wonder if the band could join me as we finish. It's interesting to me that the Bible finishes in this account and it says that God gave them families of their own. And he says that because often midwives were infertile. They were the barren women in the community sometimes. And yet they spent their lives diligently assisting birth for the wider community. Holding in their hands every time what they so desperately wanted. Stewarding for other people what it is that they must have been hoping and praying for. And so I wonder this morning, is there a place of lack in my life or your life that I think excludes me from helping birth fruitfulness for somebody else? could be so easy for those women to be like, do you know what, this is a real source of pain for me. And so I'm not going to, I don't want to see pregnant women. I don't want to be near birthing women because they've got what I want and that's too painful. So I'm not going to go there. But actually they pushed through that and allowed themselves to help birth fruitfulness. And in response, God gives them families of their own. Could it be that God uses our faithfulness 
and obedience to him in an area to eventually bring our own blessing out? Could it be that in the places where we feel that we lack and where we feel that we don't have enough, that that's the very place that when we bring our faithfulness and our obedience, that God's going to bring that fruitfulness and blessing out of. I wonder if you stand with me this morning. As we finish, I want you just to close your eyes and think about a promise of God over your life that you've yet to see come to pass. And you'll know what it is right away. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit just now and say, Holy Spirit, is there somebody that I need on my midwifery team? Is there somebody that I need to ask to stand with me? Have I been trying to carry this on my own and I need to involve somebody else who can bring strength when I don't feel very strong, who can bring comfort when I need it, who can bring truth when the lies surround me? And if the Holy Spirit has dropped a name or a face in your head right now, I want you to be obedient and act on that. And after the service, go and talk to them or send them a text. And if you're a guy, it might be a bit weird to send a text saying, hey, can you be my midwife? But you might want to explain to them, hey, can you stand with me? Can you help steward the promises of God on my life? Can you help birth this promise in my life? And will you be with me to do that? So Father, I pray for every person here. I thank you that we've sung this morning, you're a faithful God for all of our lives, not just some of it, not just in the good, not just in the bad, but all of our lives are faithful. And what you have spoken, you will fulfill. Because you're not teasing us. You're not mocking us. You're not leading us on. You're not cruel. You're not holding a carrot. I can just see like a, like a stick and a carrot. And for somebody in the room this morning, you feel like that's what it is. You feel like God's been holding this carrot out in front of you. And however close you get, it just keeps moving away. And this morning, God wants you to know He's not like that. But His timing is very different than ours. And you need your midwife team around you to help you while you wait. So Father, I pray for every person in the room that will be faithful and obedient no matter where we are in our story. That if you said it, then we commit this morning that we will believe it and we will hold on to it until we see it. Believing that even if it's not in our generation, that you will be faithful to perform what it is that you've said. So Father, I pray strength and comfort into every heart tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.